Thank you, John. What we know and what we don't. I wonder how many of you read that sermon title for today and remembered that famous statement of Donald Rumsfeld in 2002. There are known knowns, he said. These are the things we know that we know. And there are known unknowns, that is to say there are things that we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns, and these are the things we don't know that we don't know. Ironically, given that his statement was made in the context of the Gulf War, the content of Rumfeld's saying apparently draws heavily on an Arabic proverb, which goes like this. He that knows not, and knows not that he knows not, is a fool. Shun him. He that knows not and knows that he knows not is a pupil. Teach him. He that knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him. He that knows and knows that he knows is a teacher. Follow him. Today, the Christian season of Advent begins, a time when we think of the preparing for Christ's coming in two distinct ways, coming not only as a human baby in a stable in Bethlehem celebrated on December the 25th, but also as the risen one who died, who states to his disciples that he will come again as Lord and King and Judge. And so in Advent, each year we reflect on what it might mean to be ready for the coming of Christ in either way, or if you like, perhaps in both ways. So what do we know and what do we not? Jesus is coming again. We know that. Christians can faithfully believe that just as surely as there was a time when God created the earth, just as surely as there was a time when human messed, humans messed up God's creation, just as surely as Jesus Christ, God's Son, walked this earth, just as surely as he lived and died and was raised again by God's power, so he will come again. We know that by faith. What we don't know is exactly when. It's at a time, to quote Matthew, you do not know. Which means that those who tell you that they do know should be regarded with a great deal of skepticism. I mean, if even the Son of Man does not know, as it says in that passage in Matthew, why should we believe that God reveals such mysteries to a shopkeeper in Kansas or a preacher in Paris? In the days before mobile phones, we lived, Helen and I, in Devon, quite near Bultisalterton. And my parents, who lived in North Yorkshire, used to call us up and tell us, we're coming down to visit you. 
Now, since they lived 314 miles away and sometimes stopped various places along the way and the many motorways and roads were unpredictable, we were expecting them, but we were never quite sure when they were actually going to arrive. And it meant that basically we looked at one another and said, well, if the roads are all right, and if they decide that they don't want to stop off and buy trees at a garden centre, they could be here by ten past, quarter past, half past five. But you know what my dad's like, they could be here at eleven o'clock. And so it became sort of, uh, you know, one of those things where you put something in the slow cooker that won't be ruined by eight or five, and you hope that you get something all right. It was the certainty of the coming, but the variability of the timing, which motivated us to have to be ready in certain ways. That's what this passage is about. There are signs, says the passage, to watch for. They're indicators that you've moved into a time where you can make various assumptions that it might be drawing near. But they don't tell you exactly when. Note the ordinariness of the signs in this passage. People are working, they're talking, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying. It's just like any other day in society. And then contrast them, if, uh, if you want to do, and you get bored of this sermon already, with the signs that appear earlier on in Matthew chapter 24, about 18 or 20 verses before the passage that we read, where it said, and there shall, the moon shall turn to blood, and there shall be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. It tells you of an environment in which you need to take note. It doesn't tell you exactly when. So, so, will he be coming when there are wars and rumors of wars? Should we be more ready? Yes. Will it be suddenly like a thief in the night when everything is normal and there's no sign of warning? Yes. In other words, we don't know. But we're asked to be ready. How? By being about the things that we know he will want us to be doing. Those parables of Jesus where the master returns or someone comes into a story and immediately judges the people by whether the lights are ready to be lit as it grows dark or not. Or they're found in the fields at harvest time taking in a harvest or they're just lolling around. Are you doing those things that are the kingdom things? The, are we doing those things which are acting out the mission of God? Being where we should be, doing the things that we should do, being the person that we should be. We're told by experts that children who receive a smile by those who collect them from infant and junior school are more settled healthy and develop earlier than those who are greeted with a frown or a shout. And therefore, being or seeking to be faithful to Christ, even when we don't know when he will appear, we seek to live in such a way that when he comes, whenever that is, 
there's a smile, not a frown. So we know he is coming, but we don't know when. So be ready. Secondly, we know that there will be a judgment. Indeed, this is often described as the day of judgment. Who shall abide the day of his coming? We know it will be an end to things as they are. One theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, a long time ago, when I was a theological student, he was all the rage. Marvelous scholar. He says, when Christ comes, it is as if God is saying, enough. Enough. And if we're not careful enough, he reminds us, we fall into the trap of thinking that because everything in the world, the way the world works, is roughly like it's always been, then we assume that because it's always been that way, it will always be this way. And it takes large swathes of time to realize the profound nature of change in the world. There's no guarantee that the world as we know it will continue to be as it is. Indeed, if you were a betting person, and I'm not, you'd bet that it won't be like it is now in the future. So we know there's a judgment. More than that, we know that there's a judgment and who it will include. In other words, we know the extent of the judgment. He will come again, says the creed, to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. Judgment, when Christ comes, will include all those who are living and all those who've ever lived. If you're not included in that, you're lucky. Some say Christians will not be judged when he comes. The scriptures don't suggest that anywhere. Rather, they suggest that Christians, as the common lot of humanity, present and past, will be judged. But that the penalty of the judgment, the sentence, if you like, is paid for by Christ. Billy Graham, as a young Baptist minister, tells a story often in his long preaching ministry of as a young man getting a fine for speeding in his car. He goes to the local court, he pleads guilty, the local judge fines him and then says, apparently, it's a true story apparently, Mr. Graham, I greatly respect the ministry that you're developing and out of my respect, I will pay your fine myself. And Billy Graham very often said afterwards, that's just something akin to the judgment of Christians. You have judgment pronounced upon you because you're a sinner and there is no health in you and despite your efforts to live as Christ would have you live so there's a smile when he returns, we fail. And he pronounces sentence upon us and then says, I'll pay the price. 
supremely, of course, with his own life laid down, with his own blood shed on the cross. As the hymn goes, which we'll sing in another Christian season just three or four months away, on the cross condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. So we know there's a judgment and we know the extent of the judgment and we know we're included in the judgment. What we don't know is the exact nature of the effect of the judgment. Those graphic pictures of hell that you see in all the medieval and renaissance museums of art with demons and red devils with fiery tridents and beasts with half-human limbs in their mouth and dripping blood or humans on roasting spits being uh, cooked like chickens that you buy in the supermarket for a fiver. Their graphic guesses of what comes into your mind when you say there is a hell for those upon whom the sentence is passed at the day of judgment. Now, please do not mishear me. I am not saying that hell is nice. I am saying that we don't quite know exactly when Christ will return and we don't quite know the exact nature of where we go when we're judged and Christ has not paid the price. Nor do we know when this judgment is any more than when we know when Christ will return. The person who knows for sure that he will die or she will die in a few days because the prognosis is so bad will do all sorts of things out of character because they have a firm deadline before they throw caution to the wind or make their peace with God or whatever. Likewise, even a Christian person who knows Christ will certainly not return in their lifetime may well be tempted to throw caution to the wind and morals to the wind and just take a, a lax way out. In the Narnia Chronicles of C.S. Lewis, the last of the seven chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle and the last to be written. Aslan the Christ Lion comes back into Narnia as Lord and King returning for the last time. It's Lewis's version of the Advent themes of Christ's return and judgment and final death and the promise of heaven. And he writes, or Roger Green writes in one of his biographies, how he wrestled for a long time to find the image in the last book about how to signal what the coming of Christ on the day of judgment means and brings. And eventually he chose, and those of you who've read the book may remember this, that every creature on earth slowly comes to the throne on which is sat this Christ lion. And it's whether they can look him in the face. And those who look him in the face go off to the right, 
to a, an image of light. And those who keep their heads down in shame and cannot look him in the face slowly creep off to the left and to a darker place. Like the artist, he was wrestling with an image. But where are you today? If Christ chooses to return as king and judge. Thirdly, and the last thing we can know is this. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Even judgment is not the end. Even death, says Paul, is not the end. For all its themes of judgment, the Christian church has looked upon the return of Jesus Christ not as the thing of most calamitous great disaster, but in the words of the great saints of the church, the blessed hope. How can it be that the one who returns to be your judge and says enough and the world crumbles can be associated with the blessed hope. We don't even know exactly what heaven will be like any more than we know exactly what hell will be like. We've got clues. We know, for instance, that it is where the Lord Jesus will be with those who love him forever. What was it Jesus said in John's gospel that in many an instance in our life we've declared with faith through tears, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and I shall return to take you to myself, that where I am you may be In another of C.S. Lewis's books, one of my favorites, called The Great Divorce, Lewis tells a story of heaven and hell by taking an interested party on a bus trip to both. And at a certain point of the book when they've gone to heaven, the character, the central character of the book has got off the bus, he's been shown round by his guide who, uh, interestingly, C.S. Lewis uh, pictures as one of his great heroes, George MacDonald, who was a Narnia writer before Narnia. And so all through the book, the guide shows his client round with a, a Scottish accent, which I shudder with Gus there, even though Gus looks half asleep now. Um, I shudder with Gus there to even half imitate but at a certain point in the book, this radiant, beautiful, angelic, shining figure straight out of Indiana Jones' film sort of floats down the side of this heavenly hill. And the first person who's been shown round points and his face drops and he says, is that, is that who I think it is? And George MacDonald, the guide, turns round and sees the figure, the angelic figure, and he says, Ah, oh, no, that's someone you've never heard of. Her name is Sarah Smith. She comes from Golders Green. 
And suddenly you see what Lewis is telling you. That even the Sarah Smiths from Golders Green, who die in the Lord, who come through the judgment, there's that blessed hope. It's a picture. But heaven has a habit of exceeding even the grandeur of our ideas and our pictures. And what will come to be will be greater than we can ever know or imagine. So what do we know? That Jesus Christ will return. That he is the judge of all. And that there is the promise of heaven with him for those who love him. Are you ready for Advent? And if not, if the Christ of Advent comes before the Christ of Christmas, where will you be? And what are you going to do about it even now this morning? Amen.